Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, You know, after what I hope you agree was a pretty uh, informative show that we did yesterday on climate change with two outstanding experts in the field, uh, we got a lot of campaign news to talk about on the show today. By the way, if you missed the climate change show, it's available on our podcast and also on our website at gpb.org slash PR. Um, And I think you'll uh, like listening if you haven't had a chance to hear it. But as I said, a lot of campaign news to discuss. So I want to get right to the panel. It's what we call here at Political Rewind a double Riley day on our show. <laughs> Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us as he is on Thursdays. Kevin, it's great to have you on. It's good to be here, Bill, uh, part of a show where we'll really dig into uh, politics. Um, I always enjoy it. And we have Riley Bunch public policy reporter at George Public Broadcasting. Uh, you hear her on GPB Radio. You read her on our website. How are you, Riley? Doing good. Glad to be here. Thanks, Bill. So how fired up are you, Riley, about this unbelievable campaign that we're covering uh, across the Georgia ballot? I mean, I hate to use this word because we always hear it, but it truly is unprecedented, right? It is, it's a crazy time, and it will continue to be crazy. It's pretty extraordinary. Uh, Tammy Greer is back with us, professor of political science at Clark Atlanta University. Hi, Tammy. Thanks for joining us today. Of course, Bill. Good morning. Good to be with you. And last but not, uh, well, we're glad you're here. And last and certainly not least, and Donna, I saved you for last because I want you to plug your new show. Donna Lowry, who is the uh, host of the upcoming new show on GPB TV. Uh, lawmakers Beyond the Dome. You start a week from Sunday, uh, 5, 5.30 on Sunday afternoons, July 24th, the first show, right, Donna? It's 5 p.m. on Sunday, the, July 24th. We're excited about it, and we're going to, it's a whole hour, and we're going to focus on concealed carry, and we also will focus on the rising crime rates and the gun-related um, crimes. Um, violence out there. So we're, we're really excited about it. I think it's a good show, interesting conversation, and it's a chance to take what we do on lawmakers during the legislative session where we focus on the laws and the lawmakers and take it outside of the Capitol and talk about how it affects Georgians and um, how how the laws become laws and what happens with them. So we're excited about so, it, too. And I'm sorry I'm not so, a Riley to this morning, too. I, I, I just had to add that. I feel like I should so be that's right. added you're, that to my name. <laughs> so starting a week from Sunday, you'll be on every Sunday afternoon at 5 o'clock, uh, Lawmakers well, Beyond the Dome. And, no, not every Sunday. Not every Sunday. We're, we're, we're working on that. We're kind of ramp up to something like that. We've got to ramp okay, up. Okay, okay. 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 Thank you for uh, uh, making that clarification for us. All right. Let's get right to it. Uh, Kevin, we've now got uh, all of the uh, fundraising numbers for the most recent quarter 
of uh, uh, fundraising by the candidates. And um, it, it, the general statement is that Democrats are outpacing Republicans, those on the Georgia ballot, in a couple cases, dramatically. And um, we've talked about the fact that Stacey Abrams is doing extraordinarily well compared to Brian Kemp. We now know that um, Raphael Warnock has set another record for a U.S. Senate uh, uh, candidate, uh, incumbent candidate. He raised in the last period $17 million plus million, which is fairly staggering compared to Herschel Walker's six point. $2 million. Um, it's an extraordinary haul. And we should add, Kevin, that Warnock now has $22 million to work with, money in the bank. Walker has $7 million in cash. Um, so it's it's quite a difference. But I don't think anyone believes that Walker's not going to have enough money to be competitive, Kevin. Yeah, I think you're right about that, Bill. And maybe, you know, this a uh, confusing way that Herschel has of talking makes it hard for him to just directly ask for money and get people to understand they ought to write a check. Maybe it's as simple as that. But in the end, he has massive re- name recognition. He, Everyone knows who he is. I mean, it's going to be a super expensive race. And I really think it comes down to how people put this money to use and whether they can really effectively spend it. You can only buy so many television spots. And it, uh, to me, it never makes sense when you see three of the same spots in the row as you sometimes do when the, when the stations are just trying to get the things aired. So how they spend the money and what effect it has, I think, will be the key. You know, Riley, that's a really good point, uh, because certainly a lot of that money will go for TV. Um, and one of the things that's extraordinary about election cycles these days is that so much money is coming into campaigns that people go up and stay up months before a race. It used to be that candidates would hold off their TV spending until, say, the final couple of months, whatever, a certain period of time before a race, because you can't afford to go on, say, in the spring, go dark in the summer, and then come back in the fall. It's just a political malpractice to do that. Now you can stay up for months and months at a time. Well, I mean, you think about Senator Warnock, who basically has not stopped campaigning, right? <laughs> he was elected into office, and he went straight into campaign mode because he was up again. But I think it's also interesting to look at um, what races down ballot are also bringing in the funds, right, and how mm-hmm. they're spending them there, which is the, the down ballot races, attorney general, secretary of state on the Democratic side, they're out, out raising, raising their Republican opponents, right? And I think it's a testament to um, the importance of those races and the, you know, the strategy that the Democratic Party is using to get voters to get involved in those down ballot races as well. Um, yeah, the, the, the gaps are not to the, uh, as large as they are between, say, Walker and Warnock or Abrams and Kemp. But you're right. Uh, Jen Jordan in the AG's race is out raising so far Chris Carr and uh, B. Wynn is out raising uh, Brad Raffensperger. But Tammy, you're, one of your areas of expertise is looking at mobilizing voters and, and how we as voters get involved in elections. So it's important to point out that while spending on ads is important, so is the get out the vote effort and money has to go into uh, uh, how you organize to get people going door to door to encourage voters to get to the polls and all the other more sophisticated ways you encourage turnout. 
Absolutely. Um, it, it's, it's great to have a candidate having these, um, these ads to define who they are and perhaps also to define who their opponent is. Um, it's great that we have efforts to get folks registered to vote. Yet, as we saw in the primary, the proportion of people who are registered to vote who don't vote is tremendously high and it's inconsistent in so many of the communities that are um, negatively impacted by public policy because of lack of participation. And so I would really hope that the candidates and um, the organizations that are politically focused, you know, have a concerted effort to ensure that um, that folks in the communities actually go and vote um, in, in this midterm election. Yeah, so, you know, I'm, I don't, this doesn't surprise me. So we know the Democrats have this energy and synergy going on. We know that in mid that they've got to right now because we know that midterm elections generally turn against the uh, party that has the person in the White House. So they've got to put more into it. But I also think when it comes to the Warnock-Walker race, that there is just a lot of interest in the race. It's kind of, it's unusual that you have, first of all, two black men who are running for the Senate in Georgia. Uh, Georgia is ground zero, as we all know. And I think there are a lot of people, and I guess it's um, been reported that Warnock's people are saying a lot of this money is coming in grassroots. I think there's a lot of that going on, especially within the black community where they, they see what's going on. This is an unusual race in the sense that you've got two black men in, and you've got a, the pastor of one of the most well-known churches in the world um, running and um, trying to stay in office. And he's done what a lot of people believe is a pretty good job with what he's done in that office. So I think that we're going to see more of this happen. Um, when it comes to the ads, though, I was just thinking about this. I was in Tennessee recently, and I thought, who thought I would miss seeing regular commercials? Because all we see are political <laughs> ads here in Georgia. But honestly, when I saw some other commercials, I thought it occurred to me that I, we don't see a lot of other things being advertised because we're seeing so much of the political ads. Tammy? Yeah. Um, so, Bill, uh, last uh, midterm election in 2018, uh, over 2.5 million Georgians did not vote in the governor's race. Um, and that doesn't uh, in include the other statewide races. But in the governor's race, 2.5 million, over 2.5 million Georgians who were registered to vote did not <laughs> cast a ballot for the governor's race. And um, nearly... Uh, it was like nearly um, 950,000 of that 2.5 million were black folks who were registered to vote in Georgia who did not vote. So I think that um, these organizations who have this data um, should really focus not only on those of us who are consistent voters, the inconsistent voters, and those who are registered and who have yet to cast the ballot. Yeah, and I think we're seeing uh, certainly Democrats starting uh, that effort to uh, identify uh, non-voters and try to motivate them to get out to the polls. Kevin, just to um, amplify on uh, Donna's comments about the grassroots contributors, um, the Warnock campaign reports that their fundraising totals uh, include contributions from 258,000 individuals, 
The average donation is $37. So you talk about a grassroots effort, and they comes from all over the country. We should also point out, Kevin, that Herschel Walker has gotten donations from every state in the country, his campaign tells us. And, and Walker has emerged as one of the top Republican fundraisers this year, but he does lag significantly uh, behind uh, uh, Warnock, as we've already said, Kevin. Well, sure. And the, all this fundraising, of course, is uh, evidence of how the race has been nationalized. I mean, people recognize, uh, as as we learned last time, that the control of the Senate could come down to this very race. And so there's interest all over the country uh, in it. And I just think that, um, you know, they, they, all the candidates emphasize that individual donor thing and the grassroots level of their campaign because both sides want to position, the, you know, each other as getting money from non-Georgians and, you know, a, a political elite, whether conservative or liberal. And uh, with, with each release, that paragraph makes it up higher and higher uh, from the campaign, which is what, what you start to notice. Uh, Donna, here's a quote from, uh, it's attributed to Herschel Walker himself, uh, it's, it's in the AJC, uh, he, here is the quote, we are so thankful, says Herschel, for every single voter, door knocker, volunteer, and donor who has worked with our campaign to defeat Raphael Warnock, but here's the payoff line, Senator Walk Warnock has done more for Joe Biden than Georgia, and that's why we received donations from Americans in every state. What a surprise that if you are running against the incumbent United States Democratic senator, you're going to tie him to President Biden, who in the latest New York Times poll has an approval rating of 33 percent, Donna. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of that, where they are, the, the ads on, on all levels, not just in that race, are tying everything to what's going on at the White House and Joe Biden and his low ratings and what's <laughs> happening with uh, in the country when it comes to the the uh, the gas prices and what we're seeing in terms of the inflation. So there's it's not a surprise that they're doing that kind of thing. But I think Warnock is, although he has voted with uh, Biden on a lot of things, he still has been able to um, kind of carve out his own way in terms of who he is. And I think that the you will continue to see the focus on that, where there is more interest in making sure that he is considered, you know, his own person in a lot of this. Riley? I think piggybacking off of what Donna said, you know, we're also seeing that kind of Georgia politician tied to the federal level in the Stacey Abrams, um, Governor Kemp race, right? Stacey Abrams faces the challenge that she is so deeply tied to the federal Democrats, to the National Party um, right now, to where she, you know, she kind of pushes away from it a little bit during her campaign. And I think after the 2020 election, in terms of voter mobilization, it was so widely recognized that the Democrats had such big wins off of their voter mobilization efforts they've built for so long, and Republicans needed to catch up on that, right? And I think this cycle around, it's how do they mobilize those groups and their voters based off of the issues that we're seeing today. Uh, Tammy, one of the things that Warnock is doing to, to try to create that distance between himself and President Biden is um, he's, he's, uh, he's making uh, statements uh, that are not untruthful saying things like, I'm the one who's pushing President Biden to forgive student loans. I'm the one who pushed the White House 
to uh, declare a federal gas tax holiday. I'm the one who's trying to get the president to go along with my plan to reduce the cost of insulin for diabetics. It's, it's probably a pretty smart strategy, but the question is whether the overwhelmingly low approval ratings for uh, the president are nevertheless going to have an impact on, uh, on Warnock. Right. Um, so, again, I'm always curious as to, you know, why the approval numbers are low, you know, specifically, what does that mean? Um, but it's, it's, it's important to show that, um, that the incumbent is pushing against um, the president of his own party. It's important to show um, that that the incumbent is pushing uh, on specific issues that are impacting folks on a day-to-day basis. Um, and it is important to show um, not only to the folks that voted for the incumbent, but just everyone in Georgia and uh, people around the country that will benefit from those particular policies, that there is a push. And it's not just the push toward the president. Is also pushing Congress to do something as well, because the president can't sign it into office if Congress doesn't create the bill for it. So, Kevin, one cautionary note. Uh, we talked about money on the show, fundraising, and the Democratic lead. We talked about it in terms of the Abrams race a few days ago. And, and our panelist, Chuck Williams from uh, Columbus, who's been following campaigns as a journalist for many, many years, reminded us that money isn't everything. He pointed out that in the second district GOP congressional race down there, um, Jeremy Hunt, the candidate favored by the Republican National Committee, by the Republican uh, Congressional Campaign Committee, who raised a lot of money in and out of state, uh, vastly outspent Chris West. Uh, Chris West won that race, despite the fact having very little money to work with. Now, a congressional race in a, in a district rather than statewide, is a whole different matter. But but Chuck points out, Kevin, money is not everything. Well, I think, Bill, it's good that you pointed that out for the listening audience just in all of our lives generally, right? I mean, uh, money isn't everything. But even those of us who are lucky enough to have money to spend can certainly misspend it. And so I do think campaigns are highly capable of that. Um, and it really does come down to uh, – People have to go vote, and that's in the end, that's all that matters. No matter how many TV spots you run or what else you do, you've got to find a way to get the votes to win. And it, you're right. It, we've seen a lot of races where the money did not provide that. All right, um, Riley, let's talk a little bit now um, about a subject we haven't spent a lot of time on on this show uh, yet, and that's the continual apparent missteps of Herschel Walker and um, how much attention they're gaining from us in the media, um, and perhaps uh, the influence they might be having on typically Republican voters. The most recent example of that, of course, is Walker making this rather bizarre statement about good air from the United States, uh, moving to China, pushing bad air back to our country. It was a pretty indecipherable comment. Although I will say, Riley, NPR a couple of years ago did a report in which they did say that bad air from China isn't having an impact on our air here. So he wasn't completely wrong. It's just his thinking on the subject 
uh, was uh, struck most people as very bizarre. But that's just one example. We didn't even play that soundbite on the air because why cherry pick one thing like that when there are so many ways in which you could talk about Walker making these odd statements that have some people questioning whether he's uh, qualified to be a member of the Senate. Well, I think there's a reason that his campaign keeps him out of the public eye a little bit, right? And we're seeing that in um, the, com- the, the, the truly bizarre comments that he makes. And, um, and, you know, GPB reported, the AJC reported that this was not the first time he had made that comment um, about the air. You know, videos came out from other local county um, meetings that he was making the same comments. And I think it, it's not only just about the comments he's making, but the way he's choosing to respond to the criticism, the way the campaign is choosing to respond to the criticism, you know, they they double down, they push back. Um, and this is very reminiscent of the type of Republican Party politics that we see from Donald Trump and um, Marjorie Taylor Greene and even David Perdue when he was running his governor's race statewide, right? It's these bizarre comments that even if they're wrong, they have an air of truth to it, they're confusing to voters, they they stand behind them. And that's why I think, you know, it would be surprising if Herschel Walker also took the stage to debate Senator Warnock. Well, so here's what's really going to be interesting to watch, Donna. The um, Walker campaign clearly recognizes that they have had some trouble in trying to establish a message for their candidate, uh, to uh, get him in front of voters in a way that, that is effective for them. And so they've re- reshuffled their campaign organization. Uh, they brought in Chip Lake, who people who are really, really uh, political junkies know has been one of the leading uh, Republican consultants in Georgia for a very long time. He used to, back in the day when we used to have political consultants on the show regularly, Chip was on with us. Um Uh, So they're starting to rethink the campaign, um, and we'll see how effective they can uh, become in in changing that image. But I think what Riley said is especially interesting. At the same time they're changing their their campaign team, suddenly Walker is saying, of course I'm going to debate Raphael Warnock. Um, He hasn't talked about it in great detail, and neither has the campaign, but I wonder if this is an attempt to move in a new direction. Yeah, and I think you've got to believe that nationally the GOP is saying, hey, what is going on in Georgia? (laughs) Let's get some good people down there, people who know what they're doing. This is a race that's too important to us. And so let's bring in some really, really good people who know what they're doing and and have them help shore up the the team that's already in place down there. So you've got to believe that's it. And then the, the whole idea that, Let's let's also go with the what we've seen in the Trump playbook, and that is um, try to spin any gas in a positive way to make sure that at least, you know, as Riley pointed out, there's some nugget of truth in it. But let's go ahead and try to spin it a little bit. So it's a way of de- deflection, right, as a designed to get to the core voters who, who know that there's something there, who have been told that the, the virus came from China and that there must be something in the air that it might be traveling um, over, over to the United States and all. And then, you know, so there's some negative truth in it and all. But then 
then you've got this debate that's come up, you know, the, the, uh, the possibility that he's now talking about doing a debate. He did no debates during the primary, and now he's talking about that. And isn't that the debate that everybody's waiting for? Uh, Herschel Walker against essentially um, a, a, a professional orator <laughs> in, in uh, I, Reverend you, Warnock. You know, Tammy, I I get that. Um, by the way, I didn't in, in laying out some of the problems that Walker's having is with truth telling. I mean, we've now seen examples where he hasn't even talked honestly to his staff about things like the number of children that he has. He's talked about the successes of his business, which apparently haven't been uh, correct. Um, but I wonder, Tammy, uh, there's a down-to-earth quality about Herschel Walker that strikes me is potentially going to serve him well, even against somebody as skilled as Raphael Warnock. Any of those of us who've been to see uh, Reverend Warnock at, uh, at, at his church uh, 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 preach on a Sunday morning know what a powerful orator he can be. But, but put it in the context of African-American voters, Tammy. Is, is there going to be an attempt by the Walker campaign to reach out and assume that they can win a significant share of black voters given their candidate is black? Absolutely. Absolutely. You're, um, I think you'll see that, um, number one, I would caution all of us that, you know, the same type of conversation that we're having was the same type of conversation right before the 45th president was elected to the United States, right? Um, so I think it's very important for us to caution with that because the everyday down-to-earth language and um, sometimes missteps with our words um, is, 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 it could be a space of connectivity with Walker and with voters. Walker can talk about um, you know, his, his struggles. He can talk about um, going to school, uh, to a university, playing football, and the challenges I had with that. And there can be some relatability with some folks within the Black community. And as we've seen, um, about 13% of Black men who voted, voted for the former president of the United States. So I think the Republican Party sees an opening, particularly with Black men, um, uh, to, to vote for the Republican Party, and even more so that you have a Black male um, as the nominee for the Republican Party for U.S. Senate. And I also want to say that I think it's—I'm sorry. I just want to say that I think that um, it is brilliant of the Warnock campaign to have Chip to come to be as part of the campaign because that helps to create um, um, a space for uh, using language that identifies with uh, Republican or independent-leaning voters. I think Tammy makes a great point. Um, I'm going to read a quote from a story that our Shannon McCaffrey reported about Herschel Walker uh, from a voter. There's no politician out there that's perfect. I don't know if it's the media or political dirty tricks or what, but I think they're trying to make more out of things than they deserve. This is a voter who says she's going to vote for Herschel Walker. And I do think that the fact that he's been unavailable to us in the media, and therefore we hang on every word that he says, we make it a much bigger deal than it would ever be to average voters. And he's getting to the point where there's so many gaffes Eventually, they're not even going to be news anymore. I know that's a crazy thing to say, but it's almost starting to become true. So I do think that 
uh, it would be perilous for those of us who are trying to analyze these races to think that just because he he says these things that seem crazy or have he has a these terrible gaps that somehow people will run away from that i don't think that's necessarily true all right kevin riley uh gets the last word as we go to our first break in the show we'll be back with more after these messages Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. GPB's Donna Lowry and Riley Bunch, Tammy Greer, Clark Atlanta University, and the boss, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Kevin Riley, uh, join us today. Uh, Kevin, uh, we're going to see a lot of polls between now and Election Day from many different organizations. Um, We talk about polls on this show, uh, but less important than an individual poll typically is the trend that we see across a number of polls out there. So I I say that because we do have a new poll from AARP that's worth talking about in terms of what it might tell us about a voting trend. I also want to caution, Kevin, that I couldn't, you know, 538 is the organization that rates the quality of polling organizations. I couldn't even find their rating, frankly, for AARP's polling, and maybe they're somewhere, but All of that is a cautionary note. That said, Kevin, uh, the general headline for for the the AARP poll is that that Brian Kemp is out polling Herschel Walker. I I don't have the number in front of me, but five, maybe six uh, uh, points. And, and, And they're suggesting that it is possible that we might see Kemp who does have a lead over Stacey Abrams in this poll, uh, doing better with voters than Herschel Walker does against Raphael Warnock. In other words, split-ticket voting, Kevin. Yeah, I, you know, I, we, we're seeing a lot of this, and we're trying to figure it out. It's a little bit unusual for us. And plus, as you you really did a great job of noting that we uh, we worry more about the accuracy of polls than we ever have before because of the nature of the electorate. All of that said, I think it shows a simple thing. Brian Kemp came out of that gubernatorial primary so strong, and he it now is positioned as appealing to independents because this poll says that that's really where his strength is because he, he went up against David Perdue, who was the extreme Trump-style candidate, and he just walloped him. And so now many voters have this perception that, hey, Kemp has done a lot of good things and he stood up to Trump. Now, there, you know, Democrats would 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 argue vociferously about about that. But it just shows that there may be questions about Herschel, but Brian Kemp is the most powerful Republican in the state without question. So, Riley, uh, just to put some numbers around this, according to the AARP poll, Kemp has a 52-45 lead over 
Stacey Abrams uh, while in the Democrats, uh, while Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock uh, is at 50% compared to Walker's 47%. So again, uh, it appears that some voters who were, were polled prefer to split their vote between Kemp and uh, her, and uh, uh, Raphael Warnock. Well, I think Kevin's exactly right. The campaign and the last, you know, time in his um, um, term right now for Kemp has been so successful. And also he's been very strategic about how he um, appeals to moderate voters. And, uh, you know, the group that each of the parties are trying to get on their side right now, um, albeit probably a, a smaller group, but um, he spent the legislative session uh, using his power in office to appeal to both the far-right Republican legislative policies and the moderate policies, right? And I think this, coupled with, you know, Stacey Abrams' challenges that she sees, um, where she, as we mentioned earlier on the show, has such ties to the federal level, is giving him a little bit of an edge. And by that, also, just a quick note on kind of the Warnock-Walker race. Um, if uh, Herschel Walker loses to Senator Warnock, what a final nail in the coffin for, like, Trump can Trump's candidate slates in Georgia, right? Um, and it just really kind of uh, takes home the point of the Trump endorsement might not be the end-all be-all that it was thought of as before. Tammy, uh, it is interesting to hear Riley talk about somehow Kemp having a legislative session, which in some ways appealed to moderates. Um, in fact, uh, his agenda, in, for the most part, uh, and Democrats will certainly exploit it, was very, very conservative. I mean, after all, he passed permitless carry. Um, he supported in in the previous session one of the most restrictive abortion laws in the United States, which may very well be approved by a federal court in the weeks ahead, which could have an impact on the election. And yet, as, as both Kevin and Riley sort of suggest, because of his stand on Trump, there are actually voters out there, independent voters, who are thinking of Brian Kemp as almost a moderate. And it's up to Democrats to prove that wrong. You're right. And um, it, the commercials, the ads lately from the Abrams campaign has been um, – there has been an attempt to, to demonstrate that the, the conservative nature of the permitless carry – of the HB um, 481 and those particular impacts. I am still not sure, though, how effective that is, considering the news of the day continues to be the former president of the United States and his interference in the Georgia elections. So it would, you know, if I were a political strategist, the, the, the goal would be, you know, to tie all of those items together rather than thinking of them as individual issues, um, is if, you, if the goal is to paint the current governor of Georgia as a conservative as he is. Um, but there has been this gaping, um, this huge gap uh, to separate, you know, his policies from the actions of the 2020 election. And, and I think that that's where the trouble is for uh, Democrats um, in Georgia. I think there's a tendency from those of us who've been covering this a while to think that people are continuing to vote um, just a whole party ticket. I think that is changing. I think the um, Georgia in particular is a good example of that. We saw that during the primary 
at least that's what we hear about some of what happened during this past primary here. But I think people are really looking at issues more than they are looking at candidates in a lot of ways um, on some things. But they're still looking at individuals rather than just an entire ticket. And so I think we're going to see more of that. I think the Secretary of State's office um, race is an example of that, too. There are people who really still feel really strong about how well the Secretary of State Raffensperger, Brad Raffensperger, was able to stand up to the Trump big lie. And so I think there will be some people in that race who will be uh, looking at him. Um, I think that his opponent, his Democratic opponent, B. Wynn, is going to have to try to get beyond that when it comes to some people. Kevin? Bill, I got a question for you, and I'm going to warn you that it's a bit outrageous. And I, what I want to do is draw into <laughs> I, I draw it, you your, your extensive experience covering presidential campaigns, which is extensive, and you don't often get to talk about it on this show because we, we do Georgia and local politics. But let's imagine for a second that Brian Kemp beats Stacey Abrams, okay? Suddenly he's reelected to a second term in the most politically important state in the union. He has dismissed Donald Trump's challenge to him, and he has beaten the highest profile uh, Democrat in Georgia and one of the highest profile Democrats in the country. Meanwhile, the Republicans are trying to figure out who to nominate for president because they don't want to go down the Trump line. They've got to figure out something to do. do you, would you see him as emerging in that? Brian Kemp? Yes. Oh, <laughs> uh, we never know. You know, look, uh, there's no question. Oh, that's a great, uh, quite, quite a hypothetical that you put together there, uh, Mr. Riley. Uh, I will leave it up to uh, Brian Kemp and his team to figure out what to do next. Uh, we have seen a Georgia governor who, having won an election, uh, decided to go out and run for president when it didn't appear he had a chance in the world to become president. But I do think that the, lane, the lanes that are going to open are for Ron DeSantis, who is Trump-like, just not as angry and offensive as Trump and well, he's getting there. For, he's getting there, Bill. And, <laughs> and for well, but his perception is is that he's uh, he's not quite uh, Trumpy. Um, there's that lane, and then there's going to be a lane uh, for uh, Republicans who are are in fact anti-Trump, um, and we'll see um, how that develops. I'm, could Kemp be out there? An interesting question, Mr. Riley. Uh, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way, and we'll be back with more in a minute. By the way, uh, just to follow up on the question Kevin Riley asked me, um, you know, we do know that Donald Trump is really giving serious thought to announcing his bid for 2024 sooner rather than later. Uh, that's going to be fascinating to watch. But I think beyond that, you've got Ron DeSantis in the Trump lane and maybe somebody like uh, Maryland Governor Larry Hogan uh, in the non-Trump uh, lane and a guy who's very smart and really has figured out a way to talk to voters without the kind of right-wing rhetoric that right now is um, dominant 
um, in the Republican Party. So we'll watch how that all unfolds. All right, uh, let's let's talk about this um, story that's developing between Chris Carr and uh, and Jen Jordan, his opponent for Attorney General, and uh, District Attorneys Riley um, across the state who are now saying they will not spend taxpayer dollars to prosecute those who uh, are. Uh, who, who uh, are offenders once Georgia's abortion law goes into effect. Chris Carr has said that that is dereliction of duty, that they have no right to do that. The DAs, on the other hand, say there are any number of, of instances in which we, in our role, um, have priorities, what we choose to pursue and what we don't. It's going to be an interesting battle to watch all the way to the election especially between Jordan and Carr, because Jordan said, I don't want to uh, spend state resources prosecuting offenders. Yeah, absolutely. And it, with the um, you know, Supreme Court's ruling that the, handed back the decision on abortion rights to states, this is what we're going to see is how far down um, it gets with local elected officials. And to give some context, so when Dobbs ruling was released, um, about seven DAs in Georgia said um, Democratic leaning in liberal areas said they would not prosecute abortion crimes. They would not use their resources to do so. Um, so this is typical, right, uh, from the experts that we're talking to, is that DAs can use prosecutorial discretion and choose what they are going to go after, what they're going to enforce more. Um, but they cite a couple other things as well. They cite a giant backlog in the DA offices after the COVID kind of paused things for so long. They're still dealing with that backlog. And they also cite um, a concern that this will have a chilling effect on victims of sexual assault um, wanting to come forward with their cases. So they have some, you know, logistical grounds that they're backing it on. Can they do this? Yes. But the question becomes, what impact will it have? Right. Um, so experts are saying that it's not going to have that big of an impact just because um, it's only a handful of DAs that are saying this. And this is where the attorney general race comes into play, right? You know, I was at an event last week um, with Stacey Abrams, um, Jen Jordan, and also the um, abortion rights activists. And Jen Jordan was, you know, that was her, the primary topic of her speech was how to push back against 481. And it's such a contrast to, you know, Chris Carr, who moved the courts to deal with it faster. Um, so it's definitely going to be the primary issue of that, um, that race. Donna? Donna, are you there? Have we lost you? No, sorry. It took me a moment there. No, no I totally agree. I uh, had, during four lawmakers beyond the dome, I interviewed two um, law enforcement officers, the, Atlanta, the former Atlanta police chief, Rodney Bryant, LaGrange police chief, Lou Deckmar, and we didn't talk about the abortion case, but we talked about the rise in violent crime in Georgia and all that they're dealing with. And part of their problem, they say, is the, the court backlog, the, the overwhelmed judicial system in Georgia because of the pandemic shutdown and how that's made their job tougher in terms of uh, criminals back on the street, several other things. And so the police department, the law enforcement is dealing with staffing issues, crime on the rise. When you add to that, you know, criminally charging those who get abortions or those who um, are get, giving abortions. And that's straining an already struggling system. 
that is trying to deal with the day-to-day protect and serve. So you've got law enforcement also that is going to be reluctant to focus on that. And, and to be honest, do the average day-to-day citizens who are worried about crime, do they want the law enforcement to focus on that rather than dealing with what's going on when it comes to crime in their, in their areas? Well, uh, in fact, Tammy, there's an interesting scenario that could develop. Jen Jordan has already said she will, will not prosecute. But more important, the question she has also suggested that if, 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 there be, if Georgia, let me, let me try to explain this and then we'll get your response to it. Georgia may very well have, have a privacy clause in its constitution, which would allow abortion to move forward here in this state. We'll see about that. That will certainly be tested in court and would move up uh, uh, through the chain of courts. If Jen Jordan is the attorney general, she, she has a right to say, um, one way, I'm not going to go to court to uh, uh, fight any efforts to, uh, well, I guess yes, I, now as I lay that out, <laughs> I'm not quite sure how to explain it. Jen Jordan will have a choice, she thinks, about how to deal with Georgia's abortion law in the higher courts. Right. And and I think that that's important. Um, the responsibility of the attorney general is to be the attorney on behalf of the citizens of the state of Georgia. And so, um, you know, looking at the Constitution and if uh, the Georgia's Constitution and having um, if the clause for privacy is is explicit. Right. Or even if um, she feels that she can defend the privacy clause inside of the Georgia state constitution, then there's a leg to stand on. I also find the conversation um, interesting because uh, I don't understand or I'm not clear if some of these Republican um, candidates and, and or office holders understand the impact of what they're saying about using law enforcement for those that are abortion abortion providers and the women that have them. Because on the one hand, if you are putting abortion providers who are also medical personnel into um, state prisons, then you are crippling the already crippled medical community inside of the state of Georgia. And then you are removing mothers from their families. And so I'm trying to understand how any of this um, in the long term, actually benefits the people of Georgia. All right. So, Kevin Riley, you know, every now and then at this show, I'd start talking before I think. That was just an example of it, and I apologize uh, to all of you as I tried to follow that that thread through. But the point is, this is going to be a a major battle uh, for it in in the attorney general's race, uh, particularly. Right. And, and Bill, I mean, I do think our conversation about it shows how difficult it can be to understand exactly how this plays out, because keep in mind that historically the most ardent anti-abortion advocates have wanted uh, the government to pursue the doctors and medical providers who provide abortions and not the women who get abortions, right? I mean, that's how it's usually been. The other thing, too, is this reality of our society, as I think Donna pointed out, is people in law enforcement make judgments all day long. 
I mean, they cannot pursue every bit of every possible criminal behavior to the nth degree. So when you consider what, you know, the Atlanta Police Department, for example, is up against all the things that it has to do, all the things that have come up that, you know, we think police should be better at, and all these conversations, you're going to add this to the list. I mean, these are folks who are, are really struggling to just keep up with 911 calls. I mean, I just don't see as a practical matter why a street cop would want to get involved in something like this. Okay. Um, thank you all for uh, a smart conversation and saving me from trying to figure out what the heck I was saying a minute ago. <laughs> Let's move on to one more subject before we finish today. Uh, Riley, Lindsey Graham has lost in Fulton County Court uh, his effort to fight the subpoena to appear before Fonnie Willis's uh, special grand jury looking into Donald Trump and others who tried to overturn the results of the election here. Uh, he's now in South Carolina. A federal court where he is once again saying that the Constitution protects me or any other member of Congress from having to testify because we can't be asked about our work in Congress. And of course, the argument on the other side of that is, uh, you know, when you call the Secretary of State of Georgia and ask him if he can disqualify some absentee ballots, uh, that's not any, any part of your work in, as a member of the Senate. Well, I mean, it brings up really interesting questions about the court system, right? And we, I think we saw these questions that um, when in the 2020 election, when we were talking about um, Trump's ability to send, you know, cases to court when he didn't agree and the role that lawmakers have in elections. And I'm not, obviously, it's not a surprise that um, Lindsey Graham is pushing back against this, but it also makes me question um, the strength of the case that Fulton County has. Um, if they can get him to come. So it'll be really interesting to watch it, it all play out. And of course, we also are going to watch to see what we hear from Rudolph Giuliani's attorneys, what we hear from John Eastman's attorneys, others in the Trump circle, who uh, we now know uh, really did everything they could to overturn the results of the election, whether what their response is going to be to subpoenas that they've been issued as well. Um, we're out of time. For today's Political Rewind, I'm grateful to you, Riley Bunch, to you, Kevin Riley, our double Rileys on today's show. Tammy Greer, thank you for being here. Donna Lowry, I'm glad you could uh, do the show and once again want to remind people that you're only a week or so away from the launch of uh, Lawmakers Beyond the Dome on GPB uh, uh, TV. So, Donna, thank you for being here as well. Uh, one quick program note. Um, we're going to do an interesting, I hope, an interesting show tomorrow. Our special guest is going to be former Republican Congressman Will Hurd. Will Hurd won three terms uh, as a Texas a member of the U.S. House, 23rd District, one of the most diverse districts in the state. He's an African-American Republican. He wrote a book called American Reboot, An Idealist Guide to Getting Big Things Done. And we're going to talk about the book because in it, he talks about his blueprint for how Republicans especially, but Democrats too, can get back to bipartisan governing and get away from the toxic gridlock in Congress. It's going to be an interesting conversation. I'll be joined uh, uh, by Andre Gillespie for that, as well as Jim Galloway. So I hope you can all be there for our show tomorrow with Will Hurd. That's it for us. For today, we're out of time on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I hope you will take care and stay healthy until I see you again. Bye, everybody. <laughs>